Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of You're Wrong with me, David Harsani, Senior Editor at The Federalist, and Molly Hemingway, Editor-in-Chief at The Federalist. Molly, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you doing, David? I'm okay. I had to drop my kids off at school, so that was kind of a downer, but, you know, it's also it's also a happy moment because uh, our parenting apparently had, had been pretty good and they've done pretty well, right? <laughs> like you weren't dropping them off at prison, you were dropping them <laughs> off at university. So whatever I'm I'm dropping them off, I always think like in the old days, everyone just stayed together in a little town and like no one ever went anywhere. And that maybe that was better than what we do today. I've been thinking about that because I was back in Colorado again this week because my dad has been ill. And I was just thinking about how great it is when everybody lives in the same place and you can all work together as a community. It takes a village is what I'm saying. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, let's get to to politics. I think that's why people are here mostly. <laughs> and uh, so I, there's a slate of things that happened this week. I think we should just go through them one by one, it, obviously. And uh, I think we should start with the loan forgiveness unilateral decree from Joe Biden forgiving uh, student loans for those I think individuals. David, yeah. I want to fight you already. I hate that term forgiveness. Forgiveness is a really important concept. You can't forgive. Like what Biden's doing is not forgiving something. He isn't in the place of forgiving something. He's he's unconstitutionally forcing other people who have not agreed to this to pay a different group of people's debts. That's not forgiveness. I wish that I could have shown you that the the quotation marks I wanted to put around forgiveness when I just said it. I think you're that's a hundred percent right. Also the word canceling is is the same thing. There there are euphemisms that Democrats use and the media uses. This money has not only already been lent, it's already been spent. Services have been rendered. You can't forgive these loans. You can't cancel these loans. They are not cancelable. Um so I am sorry that I used that and it wasn't clear that I didn't uh that I didn't mean that I hate that euphemism. Um, basically, the president has broken existing contracts and transferred the responsibility of those payments to other taxpayers who did not sign contracts for those loans. He did it without legislation, and it is it is dictator stuff. And I'm not saying that it's you know you know when you when you say something like that, people assume that you mean that we're living in a in a in a totalitarian state. I don't mean that. It's more of a socialistic state, frankly, but. It is something that dictators would do he, because he's rationalizing the, rationalizing the entire thing through a nonsensical emergency uh, bill that, that was passed in 2003, I think, related to COVID. It is just it is related to 9-11, you mean re related to 9-11. But 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 I believe you can use it for any kind of, emer you know, emergency and his emergency supposedly is the COVID economy. So on one, on one hand, he's saying that, you know, this is the best economy that Americans have ever seen. And then on the other hand, he's using an emergency uh, bill to, to, to do whatever he wants to buy votes, which is what I think this was meant to do. Um, yeah. yeah. Do you have something to add to, 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 uh, to that? So I think, you know, People are talking about how it's unconstitutional. I think everyone kind of agrees it's unconstitutional. But the question is, how do you bring or a lot of a lot of the reasonable legal minds agree on that? It'll be difficult. Someone has to file suit. Finding out who has interest in order to uh, standing in order to file suit will be a challenge. 
but I think there's reasonable expectation or there's a there's at least a significant chance, even with a Supreme Court that is incredibly deferential to executive authority when it's Democrats um, who are in the presidency, that they would say that this is unconstitutional. But it'll happen well after the midterms. And this is clearly designed to excite a base for midterm turnout. Yeah, I, I mean, I think they know it's it's unconstitutional and it's a cynical ploy because even if it's overturned, they can simply or quickly, which won't happen probably, but they can say, look, the, the Supreme Court's uh, illegitimate. It is undermining the will of the presidency and the people, et cetera. They can say Republicans are putting in these judges that are, you know, don't care about the poor and students and so on. So it's like a win win in their mind. It's cynical, corrosive you know, policy, if you can call it policy. So I, I agree with that. It, I also just want to make another quick point about this idea that only people making under 125K will have their loans forgiven when folks who have loans still are early in their career. 50% of these loans are graduate degree loans. These people are going to be making millions more than those helping them pay off the loans. It doesn't matter what they make today. When you, when you have a college degree, it, it you know it manifests in, in higher salaries as you move along in your career. Most jobs do, and those jobs are going to you know have them you know making six figure salaries, and they're making a, you know waitresses, truck drivers, whatever high school de- you know high school degree people with high school degrees do in the world. They have to pay off these loans, so it's just misleading as well. Uh, do do, do you want to move? Yeah, I do. I, I just I do think there is a problem with the rigged game of universities and how they have these systems set up where people take out loans for degrees that are never going to actually be a good investment idea. And the repercussions for taking out these loans, you know, like you'll, you'll, they'll say, yes, take out a loan and you can get your PhD in gender studies. And then the people don't actually make the money back the colleges should be more responsible about taking in students just to just to increase their bottom line. And I know they're technically nonprofits, but these colleges make so much money. Their endowments are literally in the billions of dollars. And they're forcing this all on you know very young people to pay and then be burdened with debt. And I think the colleges themselves should be much just just be much more responsible and accountable for the education that they're providing and thinking about whether this is really a wise investment and what, you know, I do think there are problems with this student. Well, thank you for bringing that up because um, I agree with everything you just said. In fact, some schools have interesting programs where they loan you the money and then they take a percentage of your future earnings. But basically, they're betting on the student. I love that kind of thing. But most of the time, that's not the case. And this, I think, at least, this was propelled by the government guaranteeing ro- loan, student loans. It's an immense moral hazard. Um, incentivizes schools to charge outrageous tuitions because students can just take out those loans that would never be given in, a, in the real world. There's no bank that's going to give you a loan for a journalism 100k for a journalism degree you know it it just would not happen other than maybe if you're going to be a physicist or whatever you you know kind of job so um but this just exacerbates that yeah i did notice a lot of 
a lot of your kind of people were really upset about Biden doing this. And they were like, this is totally my kind of people, Jews or acting like a dictator. <laughs> no, you squishy people. Everyone was like really upset. And I was like, what did you think was going to happen when you helped elect Joe Biden? You know, like, <laughs> Listen, I don't know. It's just I take offense like, at that. I did not help elect Joe Biden in any way. The, I think Donald Trump did a lot more to help elect Joe Biden than I did by by some of the things that he he said. I mean, I I yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I think you know when people were like, "Gosh, I just can't make a decision about people. who to vote for, Joe Biden or Donald Trump." And then when when Joe Biden gets elected and he does all this stuff, and they're like, "This is horrible." It's like, yeah, I think a lot of people actually recognize that he had these kinds of impulses and that he wouldn't be un he wouldn't be checked in any way by the regime. He would be enabling the regime. And okay. then they act all surprised and freaked out. And they are now I'm offended. So I just want to quickly say I am not a fan of Donald Trump, as you know, but I think I wrote many columns where I said I would have preferred him to be president than Joe Biden. I once wrote a short piece that I wrote that I would rather have a sociopath who agreed with me be president than a good person who disagreed with me. I would say that Joe Biden is not a good person, so it doesn't really um you know come into play. By the way, I was I was fighting with Sean Davis over whether Joe Biden had redeeming qualities or not. And I was like, you know, I think he loves his children. He might be enabling them in their addiction, but I think he loves them. And Sean was like, you don't get credit for loving your own kids, Molly. And I was like, oh, I guess that's a, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, anyway. I mean, I, I, I just think he's a person totally corrupted by by what he does for a living. You know what I'm saying? Like he doesn't, I don't think he understands anymore what a principle is because he's, he's, he's been a politician for so long that it's just not part of his DNA anymore. So I guess I do worry. I do worry that um, his rhetoric I, as his mental capabilities fade, you're just kind of getting only to see the anger and the rage and his public speaking just in recent days has been incredibly dangerous, you know, divisive. It's totally normal. And we should probably talk about it, you know, like to have really um, hyperbolic mudslinging in, in politics. I get that. And I saw, you know, you saw it with Ron DeSantis this week talking about throwing that little elf Anthony Fauci across the Potomac, you know, and I, and I'm not, I'm not naive about that, but what Biden is doing this week where he's calling the his political opponents fascists and he's saying that they're destroying the planet and they're destroying democracy and they're destroying the country. Um, you want that always to be kind of like a policy-based argument and not so dehumanizing and just angry as it is, right? Well, let, yeah, like you can say, I think if they do this policy, it will be very bad for the country. It might even destroy the country. You no, know, that's like a little different than saying, all of my opponents are fascists and you know what we do to fascists, you know? Well, I have to say that I, I, I don't love, I didn't love DeSantis's language cause I'm a, I'm a squish, but mm -hmm. I like the technocratic, slightly autistic DeSantis who like methodically on, you know, destroys arguments and, and says what he believes in a very straightforward fashion. I think he's a super smart guy. So I didn't love it. But then I saw, as you as is the case for the last six years, I saw the reaction to it, the, the incredible hypocrisy where everyone, you know, all the left blue checks on Twitter start saying, my God, you know, he's, he's this is violent rhetoric. I mean, the, the same people who called him death Santis over and over again and said that he was part of a death cult and that he was killing his citizens all of a sudden are very. Uh, you know, are very brittle about any kind of hyperbole that might, you know, that offends them. So um, 
I wish he didn't do it because I don't think it helps him in, in any real way. But it's not a big I don't think it's really a big deal. Did you I mean, what do you think about it? You oh, know? I I I want to be not the squish that I am on these types of things, but I also don't like it when people I mean, it's like what I didn't like about Donald Trump and his insults. I would say 100 percent of of politicians engage in insults. I do actually prefer the ones that are just kind of out there and open than the ones who are like, I'm really crafty. I'm going to stab this person in the back in a really subtle way that only like people in DC get and will, you know, protect me. And the fact is that Anthony Fauci is one of the most dangerous humans to like ever have existed. He caused unbelievable horror beginning with his involvement in gain of function research, his covering up of gain of function research, his enabling of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which unleashed or you know presumably unleashed this on the whole world. Uh, his AIDS work, not so great, but the COVID thing in particular, he exploited his role in order to keep children masked um, out of school, uh, to to lie to the American people over and over and over again. And so I'm just not that concerned about whether someone was like slightly rude. I'm far more concerned that there are people who continue to have their little Anthony Fauci candles and they worship and they adore him and they hang on his every word and they let him like destroy um, economies or, you know, yeah. they use him as an excuse to keep people from going to church. Like that's so much worse than calling him a little elf. So I don't, I don't actually endorse that, that kind of rhetoric, but on the scale of what's okay, it is so much more okay than like everything else involved with Anthony Fauci. I, I agree. I mean, I, I uh, you called me a squish and I, 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 I <laughs> am. Do you take that personally? No, no, I like it because it's helping me segue. So <laughs> I just want to, typically I try to be reasonable about these sorts of things. I view, mo though it's changing lately, I view most people I disagree with as political opponents, not villains or enemies, right? Fauci is a villain. He not only, uh, ha he has done more to damage trust in public health than any human being who ever in American history. There is no one who comes even close to that. But more than all the things that you pointed out, all of which are true, his, his, his backing of authoritarian policies, his his uh, his lying to Congress, right, is that he actually participated in trying to undermine scientific debate about this. He he in 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 emails with other high ranking health officials. Tried to 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 quash and smear those who disagreed with him, he's a he's he's a terrible person in in every way that we know publicly about him. I and mean, he's done no, he did nothing. He didn't save a single life. He only helped destroy millions of lives. So I I if anyone deserves to, you know to be to be mocked it's it's him. My my the point of me bringing it up is only that I don't think DeSantis need, need needed to do that. I don't think it helps him in any sort of way because uh, it makes Okay, him I want to I just Trumpy. feel this I want to defend him here. Maybe you're right. But maybe the most important thing right now is demonstrating an awareness of the level of problems of the people who are in power and an ability and willingness to fight them tenaciously. And so it's a really good way to signal to people, I'm not going to be like everybody else who was cowed by Anthony Fauci and people like him. 
I will stand up. And he also does, he doesn't just do the insults. He also articulates what they did to enable them to resist what was happening in the public health regime um, where they were pushing like unscientific and unreasonable mandates on people. So maybe it's, maybe it's just a good way to signal that he gets the threat. He also gets the threat of the corporate media, the propaganda press, and he's willing to take them on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think it's a big, I don't think it's a big deal either way, frankly, just something to talk about. Let me turn to another issue now. This was it this week that, uh, <laughs> It was this week, right, that Ch- that Cheney lost her seat in Wyoming. That right? was last week. Oh, it was last week. But she made the rounds earlier this week. I mean, things happen so fast that sometimes I forget when they happen. But this week she was on ABC talking to John Carl, right, and, and, and other interviews using this idiotic phrase, election denier, which I wrote a column on earlier this week, but I will admit to our audience was uh, was your your idea. <laughs> I saw you talking about it. So I basically stole it. Um but let's talk about that. I, I hate that phrase as well. And they use it also with climate denier, which makes absolutely no grammatical sense. It's a logical phrase. So tell me why you hate the election denier phrase. Yeah, no, I mean, that's I learned from reading about how environmental discussions were going, that if you were in any way skeptical of sort of the groupthink on climate science, you were called a climate denier. And it was meant to evoke Holocaust denial. And Holocaust denial is where people actually deny that a Holocaust occurred. And so even though it might be, you know, uh, an extreme phrase or whatnot, it at least relates to people who are denying the reality of something having occurred. People who have different ideas on climatology, ideas that have been very well vindicated, by the way, are not deniers. You can call them skeptics. You can call them like resistant to the to the consensus or something like that. Uh, but to call them a denier is a propaganda term and it's unbecoming of anyone with a brain. And so I was shocked and appalled to see not only partisan activists like Liz Cheney, who's made it her life's goal to help Democrats at this point, but also people, and, and you know, you see it in leftist media, like the New York times, the Washington post, but this week I saw it at national freaking review and the wall street freaking journal that is such a disc just discredits them completely when you are unable to understand that people who challenge election results which is by the way most everybody in politics on a given campaign they will challenge it one way or the other it's a very common thing there are legal challenges and other challenges that are employed literally every election that doesn't mean they denied that an election took place it means they're challenging something about the administration of the election you know how it was run how it was tabulated other things that's a normal okay thing to do and um to call them deniers is just i mean it's just it's it's absolute idiocy and i i actually liked that that was your headline which was yours what was it like this is the most idiotic. The election denier smear is the dumbest rhetorical device in modern politics. Yes. A bit of hyperbole, but maybe. I maybe found it very cathartic to read what you said. It is ridiculous. And just yesterday, we had Mark Zuckerberg on Joe Rogan, where he says that part of the reason, or that the reason why they suppressed and censored 
easily the most important campaign story of the 2020 election, which is the story of the Biden family corruption and the Biden family business and how it you know, gets money from all these foreign oligarchs in exchange for, you know, presumably policy responses from the person who's in government. And Mark Zuckerberg said, yeah, the FBI came to us and said to suppress what, you know, they were calling Russian disinformation. And it wasn't just that they said that. You might remember at the same time, all of these current and former Intel officials went to Natasha Bertrand at Politico, she's she's the agent of Fusion GPS, which is the group that cooked up the Russia collusion hoax. They knew she was someone they could work with to print their lies very easily. And she printed their claim that this was Russian disinformation. It was never, nobody, nobody ever thought it was Russian disinformation. Everybody always knew it was real. But that one-two punch, you had the powerful people say it was Russian disinformation at the FBI, the former FBI people, and then you had Facebook and other tech companies do the bidding of the of the regime to suppress and censor that news story. Now that happened. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg is admitting it on a major podcast. So if you believe what he says and you have every reason to, because all the facts line up that they did in fact deplatform and censor people for sharing this, that doesn't make you a denier. It makes you an acceptor of reality and that you might have problems with it. You don't have free and fair elections in any meaningful sense when the FBI is telling people to control election related stories. That's a disruption and a, and a meddling in our free and fair election system. That doesn't make you a denier makes you an acceptor of reality. Yeah, and, and just a quick point on that. As with climate denial, it, quotation marks, it begins with people who say, you know, the whole thing's a lie. You know, flat earthers who don't believe in any of it, even though I don't even consider them flat earthers, but whatever. But then, of course, it grows to be anyone who doesn't accept your scaremongering, right? Just as, as with election denial, it begins with, like, people who think a Cleveland Park pizzeria is headquarters for, you know, a, a pedophile ring to people who are like, well, the Hunter Biden story was real. You know what I mean? Like, so it, it they unjustly lump together all kinds of people. They've been doing this forever. But yeah, the FBI story, I mean, it brings me right. It, right when I read that, I went right to the raid of Trump's residence, right? Like, why don't you trust the FBI? The FBI would never act in any kind of political way. You know, this is what the left says which is just so funny because I'm an older guy and I remember what the left used to say about the FBI and the CIA, you know, and now they, they essentially treat them as, as, you know, they worship these organ institutions and organizations, but whatever. I mean, I don't trust the FBI. And obviously now we see that the FBI was actively involved in trying to get Joe Biden elected. There's no other way to see it. It's not denialism. So I do want to say some of this isn't like quite ready for publication, but both Margot Cleveland, who's our senior legal correspondent and I, do talk to quite a few people within Department of Justice, within the FBI, current, former. And this is starting to come out. You saw this with a whistleblower for Ron Johnson this week saying that, you know, they were explicitly told, don't even touch this Hunter Biden laptop story. There were actually so many aspects of the Biden family business that had been under review or that were being flagged for review that people were being warned away from, or they would do really good research on it and they would write reports and then those reports would go nowhere. I mean, some of what happened in the 2020 cycle was related to James Biden, uh, Joe Biden's brother, who's just as, just as involved as Hunter is in this Biden family business. 
he was affiliated with a group whose offices were raided by the FBI because it was uh, there was some major problems with the uh, how they were handling what what they were doing. As part of that story, I think my husband wrote about it at the time, and I know um, some other people did too. But James Biden was openly talking about the influence that his brother had when he was trying to gain foreign funds, when he was trying to um, to get people to financially support him. This is not a nothing story. It's a really important story. And there was widespread suppression of it. And there continues to be. And and it should be stressed, you know, you alluded to it, is that this story is not about Hunter Biden doing crack or, or, or you know, paying prostitutes, though that too is in itself a story. It would be a story if, if any other president's kid was doing it. The story is that there is a lot of circumstantial, but and other, you know, circumstantial evidence that Joe Biden was involved in this business, that he benefited from his position in government as vice president of the United States. That matters. That should be a huge story. And we also have I'm sorry to even bring this up because I don't know how I feel about it. But the diary story that matters, too. If that was Donald Trump, we'd be hearing about how he had potentially abused his children. It, it, there's no way that that would not have been a major story. It's. Amazing. Like you think, because also then this week we had uh, the guilty pleas of two people who were affiliated with that story almost getting out. Um, so, yeah, it is. It's Joe, Biden, of- Joe Biden was also accused of rape. And that accusation was just as credible, if not more credible than many of the accusations made against Trump and definitely more credible than the accusations made against Kavanaugh, which was which dominated the news, which was put into the congressional record. Um, so, you know, it's just, this is why no one trusts the media and that one, this is why no one should, they're just corrupt. Either, either you cover these stories or you don't cover these sorts of stories, but they just cover them for one party and not the other. And that's just how it is. Yeah. It's infuriating and awful, but also I was going to say like the Biden family has in general benefited from a very loving media friendship. I mean, both of the surviving Biden children have tremendous problems and have made a lot of allegations that, as you know, if they were for the previous president, would be considered the gospel. Um, they are instead just kind of like not covered, not dealt with seriously. And, you know, clearly they're both very troubled people. They're both addicts. I mean, even just that fact is treated so nicely and so gently compared to the standard that all you know, Trump children were held to during during his presidency. And and frankly, I don't think those stories about kids are, are, are I'm not saying that shouldn't be covered. I just don't think they're super important unless there's some sort of corruption or potential corruption going on. So I just, you know, I mean, there's just no way around it there. This is the media, FBI, they're all they all want Biden to be elected. Again, though, so, the standard yeah. was set in the previous presidency where literally nothing was off topic for any family member, any body part, anything. It didn't matter how invasive, how personal, how irrelevant. It would be covered, not just covered, it would be covered histrionically nonstop. So that's the standard. So if that's the standard they chose to set, so they should be held to their own standard and they're not even coming close to it. No. Let us turn the page to another topic you wrote about this week, which is Mitch McConnell and, uh, I guess you did not think that he was stepping up to the plate in helping uh, <laughs> Republican candidates because uh, I forget what his quote was, something like it's harder to, to, to turn the Senate 
because we have state ride ra- races than it is the house, right? Something like that. So no, tell me a little bit. Was, about- he was asked, what do you think about, what do you think about um, capturing the Senate? And he said, well, you know, it's, I think there's a, it'll be less difficult in the house than the Senate. And we have statewide races and we have candidate quality issues. And I feel like I'm not a politician. I would make a horrible politician. I would never want to be in that role. But to me, this would be like a no brainer answer. So you're asked by a corporate media person, what do you think? You say, um, well, what do you think? The economy is in tatters. Inflation is crazy. Gas prices, gas prices are sky high. Consumer confidence is horrible. Like by every measure, we are in a horrible economy. We have no border. We have foreign policy problems. We get like risking nuclear war in two separate parts of the world. We have a left that is confused about biological reality and they're trying to make your kids and have them like cut off their genitalia. And um and most of the country, like 80% of the country says we're moving in the wrong direction. And in response to that, we have put together a slate of amazing outsider candidates who are going to have fresh perspectives and they're going to crush their opposition in November. That's what you say. Like maybe they all won't win. Maybe they will. But that's what you say because right now, Mitch McConnell is the top elected Republican in the country. And if he hates, like we all get it. He lost a lot of primary battles. He claimed he wasn't involved in them, but he lost a lot of them. And he's sore and he's upset. And we get that. We all understand who he is. We understand that it's natural to have those feelings. But how hard is it to be like, well, lost a bunch of these battles, but I would like to, you know, I believe these things I claim to believe. And in order to accomplish them, we have to have a majority. So we're going to get these people all across the finish line. How freaking hard is that? It's not hard. It's easy. It's actually hard to do the other thing. And it's stupid. And it like, I, I get he feels better about himself. But like, what about the rest of the country? I can't disagree with that. I wanted to. I mean, I, you know, listen, I have no problem with him trying to get involved in primary races to some extent to try to bolster candidates he thinks have a better chance of winning. And maybe he was right about that. Maybe he wasn't because he's been wrong before and he's been right in some instances. Um, So I don't disagree with that. But let's talk a minute about the quality candidate quality issue. Do you think that uh, Herschel Walker is a quality candidate or, or Dr. Oz is a quality candidate or Blake Masters is a quality candidate? Do you think that he should have gotten more, you know, like what, what is the leader of the Senate supposed to do? Just let every, because these primaries are not, most Republicans do not participate in primaries. You have just really active party members doing that. So I don't know. I feel like he, he has every right to get involved in those races, try to get better candidates. Okay. Um, I think, no, I, well, every- let me just quickly inter- put this in there. There is the media keeps talking about the quality of candidates had a terrible there. I mean, Dr. Oz is running against Fetterman, John Fetterman, who can hardly speak, who is a radical leftist, who, who whose parents basically, you know, took care of him until he was 50 years old. So I think it's a, probably a problem on both sides. But I just, you know, coming from the right wing perspective. OK, I want to actually respond to this. I was trying to find a link to something I'd written about it before. Um, and I can't find it. Okay, let's talk about candidate quality. 
Obviously, candidate quality is important. Mitch McConnell has for years gone out there and reminded people that during the great Tea Party battle, there were a bunch of people who were nominated. Sorry about that. There were a bunch of people who were nominated who failed to win, and some of them like disastrously so. So he'll always mention Sharon Angle, Christine. What was that? Which the one in Delaware? Yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> um, sorry, I'm forgetting your name. Uh, Todd Aiken and Richard Murdoch. Well, of course, that very same cycle, a bunch of his people also were really bad. I'm forgetting the names of all of them, but I remember like Tommy Thompson lost when he shouldn't have. Um, in that, what was it? 20, we're in 2020. So in 2010, Mitch McConnell went hard against um, Marco Rubio. He picked Charlie Crist, candidate quality, Charlie Crist. Um, Charlie Crist is right now running as a Democrat for governor and called everybody who voted Republican a hater. Sure, might have been what Mitch McConnell thought was a very quality candidate. I disagree. He fought against, uh, he fought bitterly against Rand Paul. He failed to, he failed to win on his candidate quality issue there. And Rand Paul ended up winning election and re-elections. Um, in Alabama, Mitch McConnell is responsible for Doug Jones winning that Senate seat that one year because he intervened, picked Luther Strange, who was the wrong guy to run, ends up dividing the electorate. You know, like every time he meddles, sometimes he wins. A lot of times he just shouldn't meddle. There should be, I would propose for Mitch McConnell and other establishment regime figures, if you if you care so much about candidate quality and you think candidate quality is the only thing that matters, would it be so crazy to pick a quality candidate who also shares the views of the Republican voters that you're trying to get vote for them. Like, it shouldn't be that hard. There are all these great new ways to be um, great new and invigorated ideas, and they should be talking about the ideas people actually care about, and then also having the good establishment credentials. There's no reason for there to be like a bitter divide here. Everyone could work together and create, you know, have races where you have really high quality candidates who are speaking to the issues of the people. And they they always treat it like an either or. And frankly, people on both sides treat it like an either or. And I, I don't see any need for it to be an either or. So I don't weigh in on primaries at all, except for Liz Cheney's. <laughs> Because she was really bad, but I mean, I mean, sometimes the primary is the election in that state, like as it was in Wyoming. It, yeah, um, but you know, would I have picked? Would I have picked some of these people? Nope. Would I have picked others? Yep. But it doesn't really matter because one thing I learned in 2015 and 2016 was to spend more time listening to what voters in a given state want and what they care about, and less time telling them how they should be. So I, I guess I just have a hard time. All- each and every one of them is far better than the average that's currently in the Senate. Each and every one of those people in every category, like personal success, having had a life that mattered, being smart, having interesting ideas, speaking to the issues of the day. Each one of them is better. So I don't even see why we're even pretending like candidate quality is a problem here. Will all of them win? I don't know. But sometimes it's better to have... Yeah, for me, it's not ca- candidate quality. Just from my my perspective, it's about not having uh, sort of status populists running running for the Senate, like JD Vance. Uh, you know, I would rather him than any Democrat, but I'd rather almost any 
different kind of Republican run than him. But I don't think that that's a quality problem because I think he's a successful, articulate, you know, good candidate. I think he'll win probably. But and also, David, don't you think that if you were I were to get the people we wanted, in most cases, those people wouldn't win themselves? I don't think that if I was in charge, we would literally win a single election. <laughs> I, I, no, I'm serious. I mean, I, I, the reason I like Mitch is because he's a great parlamentarian and he creates gridlock and he gets judges that I like into oh, the Supreme Court. I meant to tell you this. So yeah. I, I, I had already mentioned to you that when I wrote that piece on Mitch McConnell, I have not had reader feedback like this in years, literally more than 200 responses, which might not sound like a lot, but it's a lot. Like if yeah. I get 10 responses, in, in the days of that. social media, getting that many responses is a, a ton. Right. I'm saying that most I'm, people I'm, just go on Twitter and, and talk to them. Yeah. Emails or like I got a lot of texts from people who are currently elected, you know, House members or Senate members who I thought it was funny because when I first started criticizing Mitch McConnell for his idiocy, everybody on Twitter, the entire blue checkmark brigade at the Washington Post, like openly mocked me for criticizing Mitch McConnell. And when I wrote a piece, I got a lot of feedback and all of the criticism was like, you were way, way, way too kind to Mitch McConnell. And this included sitting U.S. senators who otherwise respect him. They they actually respect the things you say. But I also got some feedback from some of these high elected people that say they think he gets far too much credit for judges. Now, the first book I co-wrote with Carrie Severino Justice on Trial gives Mitch McConnell a lot of credit. And I think we make the case for why he deserves the credit. Some of what he was doing was real small ball, tricky, um, you know, ending filibuster type stuff. And he had a game plan and he executed it well. So I I would defend him on this. But a lot of people, you know, who are close say they think anybody in his position would have done that. And that in fact, you know, you have seen much greater success between Biden and Schumer on judges than anything McConnell had during the Trump era. And so um, maybe he's getting too much credit for that. But we just kind of need in a country that's having like major, major problems, you need someone to do more than accomplish his like thing he cares about with judges, which there's some debate about how effective that even has been um, in terms of relative to Schumer. And you need to have someone tackling the much bigger issues in play, too. And on that score, do you think he's done a very good job? I, I just don't see pre-Trump, right? So it's there's, there's a different environment in D.C. at that point. I just don't know how many people would have not given a vote to Garland. Like, I, I don't know. There was a tremendous amount of pressure. George Will's writing columns that Mitch is wrong. And you know what I'm saying? There was a tremendous amount of pressure on him. So I, I for that and for other reasons, I think that Democrats have actually um, appropriated a lot of what he did before now. So that's why they're successful. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? But yeah. at the time and for me, the court is of paramount importance more than most elections. I just simply think that most politicians, especially Democrats, ignore the Constitution and having the Supreme Court is incredibly important right now because I'm not a you know, I'm not a huge you know, I don't care about democracy if it's undermining the constitution and yet you know i don't care who does it and the court has 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 stopped a lot of that but yeah i mean i i, I don't know that you know now i don't know i don't know i think that there's a different environment in dc and and there may be other senators who who, who would who would do that i think 
you have the Democrats so, are not going to not going to give a vote to anyone if they don't have to. So I doubt that the, any Republican would. One of the pieces of criticism I got on that piece was that I didn't just say what was obvious, which is he hates Trump and he doesn't want Trump to have victories. What do you think about that argument? I, I don't that that's why McConnell sabotaging his own Senate candidate. I don't buy that. I think he hates Trump and, and, and he's happy to to stick it in his eye or not, you know, do what he says. So if Trump says, hey, overturn, you know, get rid of the filibuster, he's happy to say, no, I'm not going to do that because it makes him seem more principled. But I don't think he'd undermine undermine his own success and his party's success just to stick it to Trump. I mean, I can't bore into his soul and no, but I just I don't buy that people function that way. And I don't think he does. I don't know. I I think about it. I, I, I usually when people criticize Trump for his insults or for other things, I don't disagree with it. I just find it funny because all the other politicians are doing the exact same thing. And in my experience in talking with Senator McConnell or people close to him, he absolutely is driven by personal animus. And I mean, it, it to me colored his perspective in 2020. He thought that they could keep the Senate and lose the presidency and that there would be an advantage to that. Um, and it backfired horribly. And then when the wheels were coming off, you know, like in Georgia and whatnot, I do think Trump played a role. I think Trump kind of was like, you guys screw me over. I'm not going to go out of my way to help you. And that's very petty and vindictive. It's just also what McConnell was doing. And I know that for, you know, I know, I know he really believed they could keep the Senate and not have the presidency. And he thought that would be, you know, that'd be great if people could split their votes where they voted Republican for Senate and not for the presidency. Hmm. And that was, you know, that was not, that was not smart strategy. It backfired. And uh, I, I think I I mean, and you had Trump saying, you know, the, the 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 election is a fraud in Georgia. Do you think that that helped undermine Republicans as well during the election? But I'm, I literally was just saying that that Trump, I don't think. Cared. Oh, I see what you're saying. It's petty and vindictive. Um, yeah, yeah. And well, let me ask you this. I mean, even if McConnell doesn't like, you know, hates Trump and is going to go after someone, you know, and doesn't want Blake Masters, J.D. Vance, Herschel Walker. Right. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want them also because they won't they're probably not going to be hard to control. They're not going to listen to him and they're probably oh, even going right. to attack him. Right. That's why people <laughs> always people always say, like, the battle is with Trump. It's always with actually the ideas or the people who support Trump and Trump. And so, yes, I think Mitch McConnell definitely doesn't want that. So uh, I do also want to say Mitch McConnell does a very good job of controlling D.C. in part through fundraising and consultants. So he controls the fundraising and the consultants and can affect people's races, how they run those races, who gets the money. And that is a lot of power for him to have. Uh, It has been very good for him personally. Um, It's been very good for his personal power as well. It's not always the same thing as Republicans accomplishing their goals or the American people getting what they want when they vote Republican. And so I think you know, I think he'll probably be fine to hang on for another term as leader, whether that's in the majority or minority. But I did see Tom Bevan at Real Clear said after his antics last week of trashing his own candidates, if Republicans take the majority, his odds of remaining as leader have decreased significantly. So and Tom's yeah. not the sort of person who would say that if he didn't really believe it. He's not like a, a partisan uh, He's also ex- yeah, he's ex- he's yeah. extremely moderate in his predictions. Right, but I, but I, but I say, but I, do, I just don't see that happening. I don't know that there's a per, like I don't think there's a person available to to 
that's that's there that that would be an obvious choice to lead the Senate right now other than than him I so I just don't see it yeah I don't see a big improvement like you might get someone who's not quite mm-hmm. as stupid on some of these issues but would also be not as savvy about how to advance the ball yeah Maybe. correct and you know so I I don't see that happening but I'm more interested in 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 Republicans winning the Senate than I am the yeah. House because the House they're not going to pass anything anyway that the president's going to sign but the Senate can stop potential you know progressive supreme court just another progressive supreme court justice from being on the okay on the court. first of all uh no if the republicans took the senate they wouldn't stop anything at the supreme court and you know it and i know it because i don't know that at all oh, they stopped no. garland why wouldn't they stop the, the next one first of all they didn't they couldn't even not only did they not stop garland at becoming a g and as a g he's doing so much harm to the country they helped him get there i mean he had overwhelming support from republicans including Mitch McConnell. And the guy is like putting the country on the brink. Yeah, but you know what? I don't think that any other choice would have been better. He is he seemed to be more a more moderate force before he became I'm a not team. even judging the strategy. I'm just pointing out when Donald Trump was elected president, Democrats fought 100 percent of his nominees with everything they had. You know, it slowed everything down. Everyone voted against them. Every Democrat voted against every nominee, almost like it was it was incredible percentages. And they said, this is our strategy. We're trying to slow things down. It takes so much longer to confirm people if you don't have even a little bit of support from Democrats. Republicans were like, yeah, we'd like to get your cabinet up and running as quickly as possible. And we're reasonable (laughs) people. So when a Supreme Court and we've seen this going back to Bork. What Democrats are willing to do, and I'm not saying Republicans haven't played extreme hardball. You just referenced the not having even hearings on the Garland nomination. They can do it too, but but Democrats, when they go hard against a nominee, they go super hard and Republicans are always trying to be reasonable and they're like, yeah, we'll vote for Katanji Brown-Jackson. I mean, as you know, as you know, I hate making predictions because I'm uh-huh. always I'm wrong about these things and it's not my job to make predictions, but I disagree. I don't think that an opposing Senate well, in the ever or in the in the you know for a long time, allow the president to put someone on the court ever again. I just don't think it's going to happen. Well, Clarence can Thomas is the last time it did happen. Okay, right. Yes, you. I mean, that's a both party thing. Oh, that that, that a lot of that had to do with want to say luck, but I guess people passing away is not luck. But what I'm you know what I'm saying is that even if. Um, yeah, I just don't think it will happen. I'm, I'm trying to think the only person who is, you know, Kavanaugh wasn't stopped. Uh, who, I mean, trying to think, I guess Bork was stopped uh, through, you know, because of politics, et cetera. So I, I just don't see it ever happening again. So I don't know why you, if he didn't let Merrick Garland go through at the, when, when Republicans were incredibly on, everyone thought they were unpopular. They were, you know, everyone thought Trump was going to lose why they would allow it now. Now I, I just don't see why. But maybe you're right. I don't know. I mean, now in in opposite to this, I am much more optimistic about a house doing something than you are. So there's not a lot you can do without control of the presidency. But I have been just fascinated at the difference between Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy. Like, probably I don't know exactly where they stand on every issue, but probably I agree philosophically with Mitch McConnell far more than Kevin McCarthy. Politically, he Mitch McConnell and I are probably in more agreement. I think Kevin McCarthy's pretty squishy, moderate guy. But there are two approaches this cycle could not be more different. You know, early on this year, someone asked Mitch McConnell, are you going to do some kind of contract with America type thing to give people a reason to vote Republican? And he said, they've got all the reason they need. Joe Biden's bad. 
we're not going to make any promises like it's just going to be sufficient. And Kevin McCarthy was like, yeah, no, we also think Joe Biden's very bad and that the country is in the wrong direction. But we're going to come up with like explicit policy proposals of what, what we're going to work on and oversight proposals of what we're going to do to make sure there's some accountability. And each committee has been given has been asked to like come up with their charge and also then, you know, given direction and guidance on how to accomplish it. You might have noticed that a lot of these committees started asking the targets of their oversight to preserve documents early. And the reason why that's important is like once they've already made the 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 call, everyone knows they're likely to win the house, so everyone has reason to comply. Even when the Mar-a-Lago raid happened, you saw Kevin McCarthy's tweet said preserve your documents, we're coming for you. And so rather than waiting until January 3rd or whatever day they're brought in and saying, okay, we'd like you to start gathering your documents. They've been doing that for like six, nine months. And so they can hit the ground running once they take charge and not wait a year of going through paperwork battles before they start accomplishing some oversight. And so, you know, if impeachment is going to be done and it's likely that we're going to have the first impeachment in you know what like 150 years of a cabinet official for both Merrick Garland and Mayorkas um, that does require some work and they seem to be putting the work into it and so oddly enough Kevin McCarthy like squishy California dude seems to be having a better understanding and maybe that makes sense because he's house um, has a better understanding of what needs to be done when if when power is taken then McConnell, who might not even get power in part because he has failed to put forth an agenda. Yeah, I mean that that's right. I I want to see I want Fauci dragged in front of a uh, a committee. I want him to be dragged in front of a committee every week, and I want the FBI to be dragged in front of committees. So I'm all for that. I just think in, it, that the Senate's more important to me only because of judges. So, but mm-hmm. yeah, I'm. So let's uh, let's just talk. Let's turn to culture. Mm. You've been busy, so I don't know. Have you? Uh, have you watched anything? Do you have any recommendations? Because I have a few. So I I have been very busy with my family and I love my family very much. And my mom did give me a movie recommendation, which I'm going to hope to watch this weekend with my family. She was telling me about this like Walter Matthau film called A New Leaf about this guy who marries a lady for money and then he intends to kill her and collect the money. But then, you know, it doesn't work out. And she said it was a comedy. Um, so I'm really looking forward to seeing that. But I, haven't watched, I have not watched anything, listened to anything, seen anything, busy with family stuff. What about you? Oh, are you se- are you the person sending in these emails from people who are like, actually, David, I had a good <laughs> idea on what to watch. Are you doing it like under fake email? No, no, I'm not. Those people... <laughs> I was going to mention one of the emails said that I have better taste in TV and you have better taste in music, but I was only going to mention the first part, like the mainstream media, you know, like just take that little line out. Um, uh, I, I think the people are, you know, I, these emails have renewed my hope in the, in the electorate because they seem quite wise. <laughs> I have a few things to complain about one thing, or I have a few things to talk about. One is, I don't know if you've ever done this, but we put up a hummingbird birdhouse. Have you ever done this? No, but where my, my dad's in a rehab facility and the window right outside where he is has all these like tiny, beautiful little hummingbirds because they've clearly cultivated a hummingbird garden. And I was like enthralled. I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. So I did that. We did that. And uh, they showed up. They're so cool. So at first I'm like, these are the coolest thing ever. 
then I realized that all they do is fight each other and they're the nastiest little birds imaginable. They're mean. They don't care that you're there. They like buzz around your ear. They're like bugs. They're terrible. So I just want to recommend well, against how, doing that. How big are the ones that you, how big are the ones that are in your near your house? They're three inches, maybe they're yeah. they're small. They're cute when you first look at them, but they're nasty. Their personalities are quite nasty. I'm anti-hummingbird. Uh, here's what I watched. I watched uh, Mr. Jones. Have you ever seen that movie? It's a few years old. It's about no. Gareth Jones, the person who uncovered the lies about the Ukrainian famine in the 30s. Oh. It's a great oh. anti-communist movie. Okay. You know, the Walter Duranty characters in it, all of that. It's not exactly historical, but it is uh, quite interesting and, and good enough. Um, did you see the, the, the trailer for Rings of Power, which is based on the Tolkien novels? It no. looked terrible. It okay. is just like this, like the Lord of the Ring movies and even the Hobbit movies, less so. I didn't love them as much. They have a sort of a rustic organ, you know, they, they feel, can't say real, but they, f they felt like the books in many ways. This just is like shiny. It looks like a Marvel movie. I, my, my, my expectations have plummeted and I'm, you know, I'm a huge fan of that stuff. And I just want to throw in, I, I watch a show called, I actually, I've watched it. <laughs> I was laughing because I knew if I told you this, you were going to mock me. But I was watching a, a, a Japanese show about a young man, an introvert, who starts working for a company that makes dictionaries. <laughs> and as I said, the, as I like went over it in my head, I'm like, this sounds like the most boring show of all time. I can't remember the name of it right now, but it's quite good. It's on Amazon. And the last show Wait, I want. Do you yeah. remember an old movie about a group of guys who are working on an encyclopedia for a wealthy man? And then like a woman in distress sort of shows up on their doorstop. They all live together because they're all working on this encyclopedia and they have to get it done in like a matter of a few years. And a really hot chick that it might be black.